0: Hey, problem with science. Thanks for being here this morning. Skeptics, welcome. We only have two more weeks of the series. I know that's going to break some of your hearts. I know some of you are like, praise the Lord, this thing needs to be done with. Um, hey, out of, all of the, out of all the topics we're covering in the series, next week is the most exciting of them all. Um, it's the one you need to be here for. It's the one you need to invite friends for. It's, an, it's the one that is going to be the most exciting of them all. It's the problem of relevance. Why do we do this from week to week? Why do we get excited about Jesus? Um, It's not going to be me even speaking, so you should get excited about that. I might say a few things, but it's going to be other people sharing about um, how Jesus has impacted them. So get excited about next week. Invite friends. Uh, Plan to be here. It is Memorial Day weekend, so it does take an intentional little more effort to be here on Memorial Day weekend. But uh, it's going to be a really, really good week, so I encourage you to be here. Today, however, the problem of science I don't know if you guys remember this, and maybe some of you didn't even know we did this, but before the series began, we sent out a survey, um, and 152 responses came in. Uh, I had a whole list of different topics of what what do you guys want to hear about, what do you want to have discussed, and and, um, out of 152 um, responses, the problem of science was the number one response. This was the one that most people were interested in. This is the one that most people questioned. This is the one that most people struggled with. This is the one that most people saw as problematic so i'm excited to delve into this topic today it's going to feel like you're in a seminary class this morning by the way okay so you're going to be drinking from a a fire hose this morning so get ready for that but um i think it's going to be an important conversation but here's the basic premise science in itself is not a problem okay like i hope i hope you get that right science in and of itself is not problematic science is exciting it's provided humanity with an incredible blessing but the progress that science provides us is just, it's, it's incredible. We live in an incredible era. Why? Because of science. Really, in a lot of ways, science has brought us to where we are today. And we're not living in the Middle Ages, right? We're, we're not all, all, all farmers um, working in the fields. Our greatest weapon isn't a bow and arrow anymore. I mean, we've progressed in so many incredible ways, like science has done so much for humanity. But some people see it as a problem when relating to faith, Christian faith in particular. Here's how this whole science and Christianity thing is usually perceived. In the one corner, we have you know, a former Oxford Valley professor. He's a best-selling author. He's a biological uh, engineer and evolutionary biologist. He's an atheist. In this corner, you know, fighting for the, for the cause of Christianity, we have Joe Smith. Joe Smith homeschools his children. He believes Oprah is the Antichrist, and he lives in a swamp. This is kind of how it's portrayed, right? you got the super you know, progressive, the, the elite, the, the, the studious, the educated, speaking on regards to science, and then you have the guys who live in swamps, who you know, read the Bible all day and are completely ignorant and naive to how the world works, fighting for Christianity. Science is based on truth and evidence, where faith is based on hopeful thinking and legend. Science is a search for objective evidence that leads humanity forward, and faith looks back to ancient manuscripts, outdated manuscripts comes up with irrational conclusions in the face of overwhelmingly evidence to the contrary. So is that all true? Is that all true that you know is this a fair character character of this conversation, of this debate? This morning I'm going to address three of the most consistent claims that science makes in regards to our faith. The first is that science makes God obsolete. You know, there there was almost a time in human history when when we looked to God to answer a lot of questions that now we know science can answer. And so we don't really need God anymore because science can now answer all of those questions for us. The second is that science confirms how the natural world works. So any claim of the miraculous can't be taken seriously. Come on. We know how the world works. We know how the natural laws work. And so miracles, we can't take them seriously. The third is the most prominent and the, the Achilles heel of uh, of Christianity uh, for a lot of scientists is that science is incompatible with the biblical creation account. Now I'm going to take each of these in turn, and then I'm going to hopefully provide us with a hopeful response as we conclude this this morning. The first one is this: science makes God obsolete. Now you need to know something. That in, in in some regards, this is true. Like I'm not going to deny this claim com- completely. But it's only true insofar as you define God like the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans did. Frank Turek, a Christian philosopher, says that the God, that the new atheists, like the most modern atheists, the ones who are writing all of the best-selling books on atheism right now and debunking a lot of the Christian myths right now, these new atheists, the God that they are rejecting is not the God of the Bible, but a caricature of God. God for them is some kind of superhero like Zeus or Thor. He's a limited being inside the universe that theists call upon to fill in the gaps that science can't explain. So we don't need these gods to explain how the world works. We don't need these gods to tell us how lightning and thunder work in the atmosphere. We don't need these gods to tell us what the sun and the moon are. We don't rely on gods to tell us why some women are fertile or why you know, some people have a good crop while others don't or why there's a drought in the summer. We don't need these gods to explain these things. We have science to explain these things. There's once a time in history when humanity believed this and everything was controlled by the gods, but science provides us answers now that that answer all the questions that we have. But aren't there some questions that science will never be able to explain? Because science is only equipped to test for the natural, physical causes through observation. Right? Scientists look through a microscope and they see how a cell works, or they look through a telescope and see how the galaxies work. They observe things with their hands. They put this chemical into that chemical, and they see what happens. That is what scientists do. The problem for science, then, is that the existence of God, along with the non-physical experiences that we all have on a daily basis, are part of a metaphysical world that science, by its very nature, cannot measure. There are metaphysical realities that we all experience that the physical, natural, scientific observations cannot measure. Science can tell you what is happening to the light. When you look at a sunset, right, scientists could say, here's exactly what's happening to the, the light. It's refracting um, through the atmosphere. It's bending. It's reflecting off the clouds, and it's creating this beautiful, vast array of colors in the sky they can, can tell you what's happening with a sunset. But scientists cannot tell you why you think that's beautiful. Scientists can tell you what's happening to your heart and your body and your blood pressure when that certain someone walks into the room, but scientists cannot tell you why you care. Science can tell you why you feel pain if you were shot by a man stealing your money. You know, what your nerve endings are doing and how your your body is reacting to the, the brain. But they cannot tell you that what that person did was wrong. Science cannot tell you why you have a conscience, why you fall in love, why you behave the way you do when you are in love why you're concerned for justice, why your heart breaks over atrocity, why you stand in awe while standing on the ocean's edge, or any number of other metaphysical experiences that we all have every single day. See, God is not obsolete, because without him we'd live in a moral void, a moral vacuum. That is void of justice and love and appreciation of beauty. So I addressed this issue a couple of weeks ago, if you're interested in going back. To the problem of God's existence, we went into this a little deeper. You're welcome to either download our podcast or go on our webpage if you're interested in a further discussion on that topic. But the second claim is actually very closely related to this claim. The first uh, claim is that God is obsolete. The second claim is that science can't explain miracles, so they shouldn't be taken seriously. Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, has a, a brilliant and witty response to this. He said, this argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the streetlight on the grounds that the light is better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. Remember, science is only equipped to test for natural, physical causes. But miracles, by their nature, are housed within that metaphysical category. Science, therefore, cannot test for supernatural causes. God's existence and his activity through miraculous intervention is beyond what physics can evaluate, which simply is. And this is not disputed by scientists. This is not disputed by atheists. It simply is beyond what science can evaluate. So Stephen Jay Gould, an atheist and an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, said this, Nature just is. We cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. To say it for my colleagues, all the atheists out there, all the scientists out there, to say it for my colleagues, and for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issues of God's impossible superintendence of nature, miracles, in other words. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. In other words, we can't use physics to explain the metaphysical. It's just not something science is capable of doing. If laws of physics are suspended for a moment, for the intervention of the metaphysical, then we classify that as the miraculous, and science cannot measure that. And when we see the metaphysical intervention of the physical, many people are still going to doubt. Right? Don't we just explain things away? Uh, we, we see the miraculous all of the time. Uh, uh, Alicia commented yesterday how there seemed to be this umbrella over restoration church in the radar, and it's too true, true. I looked at it, too. Eh, We just, you know, it's just the way the clouds are forming. Like we, If if it is our preconceived notion that miracles do not exist, we will dismiss miracles when we see them. We will dismiss God's work in God's hand all of the time when we see it. Even at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need to understand that people were doing this. Matthew 28 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still doubted. I mean, come on, we just saw Jesus die on Friday night and he is standing here? very much alive, but I don't know. There had to be some explanation because miracles just cannot happen. Miracles just do not happen, so let's explain them away because our doubt was overwhelming the evidence. But notice the purpose of biblical miracles according to this, right? They, they're, they're not only for cognitive belief, but they're to draw us into worship and to wonder. They worshipped him as they saw this incredible miracle taking place. Right? Jesus' miracles in particular were never just magic tricks or or to stimulate, you know, entertainment. Jesus never once in Scripture said, hey guys, look at that tree over there. Let me set it on fire for you, huh? Hire me at your next birthday party, right? That was never Jesus' intent. That's not how he did miracles or why he did miracles. Instead, he used miracles and miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. And why did he do this? Because we tend to think that miracles are the suspension of the natural order, but to Jesus, they are actually the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or, or death in it. Jesus has come to redeem what is wrong and to heal the broken world in which we live in. Right? His miracles are, are not just proofs that he has the power to do, for, do so, but they're a wonderful taste of this new world That is actually coming. The miracles that we see in scripture and that we see every day are essentially saying, hey, that world that you long for deep inside of you, that world that you are hoping for and longing for, you so deeply want the world of justice and grace and mercy and love and all the beautiful attributes that God is going to bring. Yeah, these miracles that you see on a daily basis and that you see throughout scripture, these are little tastes of that. The world that you want is coming, in other words. So in some ways, guys, friends, if you strip the world of miracles, then you're also stripping the world of hope. The third claim is, as I mentioned, the Achilles heel. This is, where, this is the silver bullet scientists say, okay, this is it, this is, the, this is how we kill Christianity. Science negates the biblical account of creation, rendering not only Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as false, but all of the Bible, because if you can't trust Genesis 1, then how can you trust any of Scripture? And so this is where people tend to land. This is the conversation where people tend... To bub up against. This issue took center stage in 1925. Maybe some of you are familiar with this, uh with the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh I don't think anybody here was alive in 1925, but you're all probably familiar with the idea of the Scopes Monkey Trial. There was a substitute teacher who taught evolutionary theory instead of the state-mandated law of creation in 1925. Think of how the tables have turned, right? Now we can't talk about creation as a theory for how the world came into existence. We can only teach evolutionary theory. This was known as the Scopes Monkey Trial. It began in large part a controversy that we experience on all sorts of levels even within our modern day. See, the problem that the persecution had, and this was an actual trial that took place, the problem that the persecution had in this trial was that they basically believed that the Bible was a divine book that fell from the sky in its actual form that they held in their hands, which, by the way, was the King James Version of the Bible. It was the only authoritative word of God that they held in their hands. And they understood this word from their 20th century lens and they held up this book the king james bible which they read in english as the authoritative word of god so when the defense asked the biblical scholars about the age of a rock that had a fossil inside of it well the scholars claim that it can't be any older than six thousand years old because according to the biblical account as mathematically deduced from the old testament the earth was created on october 23rd 4004 bc at nine in the morning eastern standard time of course And as much as I want to sympathize with this perspective, taking Scripture entirely literally misses a very fundamental point. That the Bible, as a divinely inspired historical document, it was written by human hands containing several hundred genres within varying cultural contexts. Now, we discussed the problem of the Bible last week. You're welcome to go back and listen to that if you weren't with us there. We discussed the Bible with the problem last week, and for so many of us, it's not that the Bible isn't, you know, authoritative. It's not that the Bible isn't inspired. The problem with the Bible for so many of us is, I just can't understand the darn thing. I just, I just don't get it. Like, what is it trying to say? What am I supposed to learn from it? How challenging is it to understand the Scripture? For so many of us, that is the problem with the Bible. So when I became a Christian, I mentioned this again last week, and I became a Christian, I immediately fell in love with the Word of God, and I devoured it. I would come home from school, and I would just throw my, my book bag with all my homework in it off to the side, and I would just start reading my Bible. Like, I didn't care about school. I just wanted to, to absorb the text. Like, I just, I, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I just wanted to, to soak it all in. But, but I realized eventually that I, too, had a real problem. I was reading the Bible as a, as a middle schooler, and I didn't understand a, a word of it. <laughs> I didn't get any of it. I loved what it was saying. I, I loved that something was speaking to me and breaking through all the doubt and the questions I had, but I didn't understand any of it. I mean, I opened up the Bible to Genesis 1, and I immediately was confused. It said, in the beginning. I was like, in the beginning? Like, when was that? You know, so I don't, I don't know when the beginning was, so I put a question mark with it, and then I, I continued to read. In the beginning, God created, so I got five words in the Bible. I already had two question marks in my, in my margins. In the beginning, God created. I'm like, God create, created. Okay, I developed the theology of what I understood about creation. What does creating mean to me? And I applied that to the text. And I was like, all right, well, I don't entirely know what that means. And so I put a question mark next to it. And then I got to verse 5. And I read that God called the light day and the darkness he called night. But, you know, light has physical properties. Light, light, light is separated by shorter and longer wavelengths. And light emits photons and emits properties of both waves and particles, and so light is a, is, a, is a physical thing. And so why didn't he just call the light, light? And I was confused, and so you know I got five verses in the Bible. I already had three question marks in my text, in my margin. And so years later, when I taught um, biblical studies at Bethel University, one of the first exercises that I had my students do was to read Genesis 1 and 2 and put down all the question marks that they had. And they, I, would, I would give them a half hour to do this, to read two chapters, and, and then we would write all of those questions on a whiteboard and we'd fill up several whiteboards throughout this this classroom. Like people are just like, what the heck? What is Genesis one and Genesis Two all about? It's so confusing. Nobody understands it. Nobody gets it. It's it's such an odd text that we do just don't understand. And we especially when we try to compare it to our scientific lenses that we read things through, it just it just falls apart in our hands and it can't be valid. It cannot be the authoritative word of God. It just does not make sense. And I would infuriate these little freshmen and they'd get so irritated because I would just throw all of their worldviews into chaos this first day of class. And I loved it, right? Because then we could reconstruct some things, and it was really neat. But the, the reason I, I put all of these unassuming freshmen through this exercise, which shocked, again, and angered most of them, was to begin a conversation on biblical hermeneutics. Can you all say hermeneutics for me? You ever heard that word before? Anybody here ever heard that word? Yeah? A couple of you? Okay. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. Every time we read the Bible, we interpret it. You guys probably understood that you've tried to do this. Every time you read the Bible, you are an interpreter of the Bible. And we interpret it because the Bible is a historical document intended to communicate something very specific about God and about humanity. But it does so within a historical context that is not our historical context. And if we choose to believe that this book is not divinely inspired or that it's not the authoritative word of God, then we are going to come up with a very different interpretation than someone who does believe it is the authoritative word of God. So the question is not, do we interpret? We all are interpreters of the Word of God. Every time we read the Word, we interpret the Word. We come to an understanding of what the Word is saying. The question is, do we interpret well? Do we interpret rightly is the better question. And interpretation always begins with language. So have you ever stepped back and asked yourself how communication works? I mean, we, we talk all the time, right? We, we write all the time, we talk all the time, we communicate all the time. But have you ever stepped back and asked yourself, how does communication actually work? How does language actually work? If I were to approach you one day and say, I coke today where said bag, desk, nice, we happy instead play right well, you'd probably be like, Ross, have you taken your medication this morning? <laughs> what are you trying to say here, Ross? That doesn't make any sense. I don't get what you're trying to communicate, right? You'd probably stop and, and question my sanity. Because stringing a bunch of random words together does not produce communicable language. Why? Because words only have meaning within context. Imagine that you had never seen this symbol before. You've never seen it, right? You've lived in the woods your whole life. You've crawled out of the woods and you approach a, a strip mall and there is this symbol. And you're like, wow, wow what, is, what is this, you know? What would you imagine is in this place? Having never been in this building before with this symbol above its doors, what would you imagine within this Maybe you think that there is a path that is inferior. There's an inferior path below this building. Maybe there is a religious philosophy that is inferior. Or maybe there is a simply a path below ground. This one word left to itself doesn't have meaning until we apply it, a context. We know, because we know the context, that we aren't going to go to board a train if we walk into this building. We know that we're not going to walk into some cult, you know, some religious inferior institution if we walk into this building. We know that if we go into this building, we will get a a sandwich or some super pizza now. What, really? What? Okay, so <laughs> you're going to get a sandwich. You walk into this building, you're going to get a sandwich. Individual words may have independent meaning, but string them together as a bunch of random words, and language becomes nonsensical. Language, in other words, requires context. Words are combined with other words and strung together for various reasons. And so, we as communicators choose words either in writing or in verbal communication because we believe that these words, when combined with other words, will actually produce communicable language that somebody else perhaps might even understand. If I were to ask you, How was your weekend? I'm expecting you to respond in a certain way. I'm expecting you to tell me what the last several days of your week were like and what you did during those last several days. If I were to ask you how your weekend was, I don't expect you to tell me about the order of the planets. If I want to know the order of the planets, right, I would have strung other words together in a sentence and asked you, do you know what the order of the planets are? I would not ask you how your weekend was. Now, isn't this like, so obvious that it's insulting that I'm even saying this to you? This is so obvious. We get it. It's so, so obvious. We never even think about it, it's so obvious. But doesn't it tell us something very important about communicative language? It tells us that what language hopes to accomplish is always in the intention of the communicator. Or in written language, the communicator always holds the meaning to the text. So apply this to scripture, and I suggest a few things. The words written were chosen intentionally. Genesis 1, the author, chose the words that they did with very great intention. The second thing is that authors wrote with specific contexts and audiences in mind, and we, my friends, do not live in that context. We are so, how many thousands of years removed from the context that they lived in? Their audience would have understood the meaning of their words, even if we do not. Third is that the authors hope for a particular response to be made because of the words they chose to use. But as I've said, what is unique about Scripture is that it is God's Word to us, mediated through humans. It therefore has eternal relevance, but it also has historical particularity because it is embedded in human history. And so yes, it applies to us. It is still very relevant to us, even though it is not written to us, in other words. See, God's Word is expressed in the vocabulary and through patterns of those persons conditioned by the culture of the times and the circumstances that received those words. God's word to us is, first of all, God's word to them, in other words. So even though it was not written to us, it is certainly written for us, and we can still learn so much from God's word, even though it is embedded in history. But because it is embedded in history, it takes an enormous amount of work to figure out what exactly is being said to them. Right, Our problem is that we're just so far removed from the original text. It's written in a different era. It's written for a different people that is not us. And they have a different understanding of how the world works. And therefore we must interpret. We must bridge the gap between them and us. And if we are not, we will not only understand God's divine word if we refuse to do this. We will have a very skewed understanding of God's word if we refuse to do this. We therefore must first discover what the word meant for them, the original hearers of the word, before we understand what it means for us. And so try and understand the challenge of this. I mean, put, put yourself into their shoes for, for just a minute. Let's reverse this situation. So imagine that you live in the first century, and you found a time capsule from the future somehow. And you open up this letter that is contained within this time capsule and it's in a language that you don't understand and you cannot read. And so you go to your local scribes and they translate this letter and they figure out that it's written in a futuristic language named English. I don't know how this all works. I don't know how they know what the future is. Bear with me, alright? Alright, hang in there. Hang in there. It's a stretch. Imagine you're in their shoes trying to figure out a language that you have never seen, you have never heard. You are living in a time that you have never been into. They begin the grueling task of translating the text from English into Greek. The letter reads as follows. It says, Dear Mike, thank you for your fiduciary responsibility in regards to our previous discussion. You can tell those slime balls in HR that they can chew on the fact that they have personally destroyed two years' worth of work. If it had not been for your quick thinking, we may now be bankrupt. On a lighter note, I purchased seats for the Eagles. The new stadium is sick and would love for you to join me. I also have a personal question. You know that I've been in a serious relationship with Kimmy for about two years. I really care for her and think she is wonderful. Oh, It's cute. <laughs> and so look at this, and you'll discover the challenge of trying to interpret and understand from a first century perspective what exactly is being said here. I mean, look at the letter for just a minute. Mike. All right, you have an immediate question. Who's Mike? All right, you have this guy you never heard of. What does he do? What is he all about? A fiduciary responsibility, and what does that word mean? Who, who, who even in our you know, modern day knows what fiduciary means, let alone in an ancient day? In regards to our previous discussion, obviously there is some context here. There's something that is informing this letter to be written that we don't have all of the answers to. Okay, that's a challenge for us. You can tell those slime balls. Well, a slime ball, really? Ugh, a slime ball, what, 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 is he, what is he trying to say with, with that? in HR? I don't know what HR means. That they can chew on the fact. I mean, are they literally chewing on something? Or is that an idiom for something else? I don't know. Destroy um, two years worth of work. Again, there's history. There's context to all this. If it had not been for your quick thinking, are our thoughts quick in the future? You know, how, how does that all work? We, we may now be bankrupt, all right? In a, in a society like the first century where most of the people are peasants and they may not even know what a bankrupt. Ba- bankruptcy means nothing to them. But then It continues. On a lighter note, another idiom, okay, I purchased seats for the Eagles. Like, did you actually purchase the physical seat that you're going to sit in? Like, what is that all about? What are you trying to say? Who are the Eagles? I don't know, right? Their new stadium, okay, a stadium to them, they understood that the Roman Colosseum. What are they going to be doing in the stadium? Are they going to be, you know, wrestling bears and wrestling lions? Are they going to be fighting for their life in this stadium? What are they going to be doing in this stadium? And it's sick. The stadium is sick. I mean, how sad is that? What does that even mean? I don't know. I'd love for you to join us, et cetera, et cetera. I've been in this relationship, okay? What kind of relationship? With Kimmy. Who is Kimmy? Okay, there's somebody else for about two years. I really care for her. And I think she's wonderful. And all of a sudden, the letter just ends abruptly? Like, come on. Like, like, what's going on? But, you know, so often, like, um, we would have a, a preservation of a, of a letter that maybe Paul wrote to the Galatian, And I have mentioned last week that that letter was was copied and, and 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 then sent down the road so that somebody else could copy it and then send it down the road. And so there are several versions of the same letter, but maybe in the, in the process that one letter got torn or ripped or burned or something. And so they have like 15,000 different manuscripts of the New Testament now. And they can piece them all together. So we have in, you know very early um, replicas of the New Testament. But sometimes you might only have half of a manuscript. And so there might be another portion of this letter and it might read as this. Oh, sorry, I pressed the send button too quickly. Press send? Like really? Pressing send? What does that even mean in regards to a letter? As I was thinking, saying, "I think Kimmy is great, but I need to end this relationship." I will give you more details when we meet for lunch in Sydney. Sincerely, Todd. Okay, so all of a sudden we get another clue: Sydney. Where is Sydney? I don't know. Maybe there's a bunch of Aussies sitting over lunch somewhere. You know, it gives us some clues. You know, so we have other uh, components of letters that we find and discover that might help us understand a few things. It's like Erasmus translating the King James version of the Bible. He only had five Greek manuscripts in the 16th century to translate the New Testament into English. And now we have 15,000, right? So, I mean, the, the versions that we have today are far superior to the ones that Erasmus first did in the 15th century. Interpretation is really, really hard. Do you understand how this might be hard to a first century reader? Trying to reverse it, put themselves in our shoes? I mean, we use idioms all the time. We use language that would be completely nonsensical to other people. But that is the challenge of stepping into somebody else's shoes and understanding what an ancient letter has to say. And that's why exegesis is so important. Can everyone say exegesis? Oh, that's horrible. Exegesis. Thank you. It's the careful, systematic study of Scripture to discover its original meaning. And in the same way everybody is an interpreter, everybody else is also an exegete. We all give meaning to the text. Not only are we interpreting text, we are also giving meaning to the text. The question is not, do we provide meaning? The the question is, do we give the right meaning? Do we provide the right meaning to the text when we read it? Remember that scripture is an act of communication. The authors wanted to convey something very particular to a particular audience, and the author used words they did because they believed their audience would understand the words that they wrote. And that they would then respond appropriately, even if we, the readers, 2,000 years, 3,000, 4,000 years later, do not fully understand exactly what was being written. So the first things that I taught my students uh, when I was a professor in, in Minnesota teaching Bible was that the text can never mean something that it never meant. This is the first rule of hermeneutics. It's the first rule of exegesis. A text cannot mean something that it never meant. If it did not mean what the original authors intended it to mean, we cannot apply new meaning to it. That is the simple rule of exegesis. So the challenge with discovering the author's intent is that the meaning is grounded in historical context, which we only have partial knowledge of, but we interpret in our contemporary context, which shapes and influences our perspectives. And the consequence is we have a subjective knowledge of God's objective truth. Which means that we must always approach the Bible with great humility and a lot of grace. Because nobody is going to get it right 100% of the time. That is why you have commentaries after commentaries after commentaries, each giving really helpful information, but maybe different information. Case in point is Genesis 1. And so I had to belabor you through all of that. Because what I'm about to say about Genesis 1 might seem a little interesting and might seem a little backwards from what you understood Genesis 1 to be like initially, but I want to help us understand what the first audience who first read the words of Genesis 1 might have understood, not what we understand from a 21st century perspective. Here's the first premise that I want to make about Genesis 1. It is ancient cosmology. It is not modern cosmology. I suggest that it does not attempt to describe the cosmos in modern terms, but in ancient ones. And this really does only make sense if you think about it, right? Because the text was written in a day and age when science was merely observable with one's natural senses. You didn't have a telescope or a microscope to look at the world through. You had your eyes, you had your fingers, you had what you could hear, you had what you could taste. You had your five senses, and that is how you did science back in their day. They didn't have any of the modern tools that we currently have. And so we know that in our 21st century scientific world that we hold to a particular cosmic geography, right? We understand that we live on a sphere, a globe, an earth, that is primarily water, but it has some land masses on it as well. That the sphere is part of a solar system, of planets that revolve around the sun, and the sun is a star. And our planet rotates as well, right, as it's revolving. It is going in circles as well. (laughs) And our system is part of a a galaxy which along with many other galaxies make up the universe as a whole. But we perceive as far as being very, very far away. And some of these are other galaxies that we see. Other of them are other suns that we are seeing out in the distant sky. But when Genesis was being written, they didn't know any of this. They, They didn't know any of this. They had their science, which they developed by observation and through reason. And so one day the ancients looked up into the sky and they noticed that it was raining, right? There was rain falling from the sky. And as it hit their hands, they looked at it and they recognized that it was physical, you know, it, it was material. And so if the rain was falling from the sky and it was physical, then there must be some rain up in the clouds. But, but rain is, is, is heavy, you know, we collect enough of it and it's very heavy. Can you imagine like how heavy it would be in the clouds? And, and they would think, well, if, if it's coming from up there, there must be something holding it back. And so it must be solid, the sky must be solid, and if the sky is solid, then it must be being held up by something. Maybe that's what those distant mountains are doing. Maybe the distant mountains are actually holding up the sky. That is how they did science in the ancient world. They, they, they tried to understand their world through what they observed, and they tried to make reason from it. Did you know that it's only been in the last 500 years of human history that we believe the sky wasn't solid? That the earth was round, and that we are not the center of the universe? There's a second premise, that ancient cosmology is function-oriented, not material-oriented. The ancient world held to the paradigm that something existed when it had purpose, not when it had physical properties. Of course, for something to have purpose, it must have physical properties, but their interest in creation lied in assigning purpose to functions, not in bringing something physical from the non-physical or out of nothing. And this is what you'd find if you studied the word baḥrā. You see, the Hebrew word we translate "create," which is in the Hebrew "bara," concerns functions. It does not concern material. Remember that the original text was not written in English, right? It was written in Hebrew. And so we therefore must understand what their words meant, not what our translation of their words mean. We must understand what the word "bara" means, not what we understand "create" to mean. Therefore. Genesis 1 begins with a non-functioning world and not a material, non-material void. In Genesis 1-2, when our English describes the, word, uh, describes the words formless and empty, it gives the impression that nothing material existed. But again, the Hebrew terms tohu and bohu, formless and empty, mean unproductive and without purpose, not absent and void. And so we see this in this passage, that the waters are already in existence. If you were to read Genesis 1, that there is something that is already in existence, is the primeval primeval waters that are already in existence even as God is creating the world. And every single other creation account in the Old uh, Testament world, right? all the other creation accounts that the the pagans held to, the Babylonians, the, the Persians, all the other creation accounts also had primeval waters that were there as creation took place. These waters are the source of chaos. They're the source of unruliness. The waters are supposed to represent that everything is just raw and thrown into chaos. and Nothing is organized. Genesis 1-2 is describing a world that is yet to be given order, is yet to be given purpose. Genesis 1 describes a world that is already in existence, but it is raw and it is unruly. It's like God is a kid with a, a new Lego set, right? He, he, he dumped all the pieces on the table and they're just unruly and they're raw and they're unorganized and it's chaotic mess on the table. And so what does he begin to do? He begins to put them together. He begins to order them and organize them so that they function in a particular way. Days one through three, therefore, are all about installing systems. See, the reason I was so confused about God calling light day in Genesis 1-5 when I first opened up my Bible was because he is not bringing the physical property of light into the world. He is creating a system that we call time. In Genesis, in the first day of creation, he is creating Time. He's creating a system where there is a, a, a light and a darkness, that time exists now with day one. Day two, God creates the basis for weather, and in day three, God creates the basis for food. And then on days four through six, God installs functionaries, or he installs bodies to fill those systems. God assigns roles to the bodies within the now organized system that he has put in order. This reaches its climax in day six when God creates humanity, and he creates them to rule and to reign within his good creation. And finally, most significantly to all this, Genesis 1 is a temple text. It is not a scientific text. When we try and read this through our modern scientific lens, we get confused all over the place, but probably, honestly, with day 7, we get confused the most. But to the ancient reader, Genesis 1 would not have been a scientific text, it would have been a temple text, and it would have made perfect sense to them, and day 7 would have been the most exciting day of them all. To the ancient reader, they would have understood immediately that deities rest in temples. That is what a temple exists for us, for the deity to come down and to rest in its temple. And now Genesis 1 has described the entire cosmos, the entire universe, as God's dwelling place. And God is now going to rest within this dwelling place. And a lot of people get hung up on what it means for God to rest, and they develop a resulting theology of the Sabbath because of, of that. I always thought, and maybe you did too, that, you know, creation was just such a grueling task that God just got so tired that he had to go and rest. Now, he had to go put his feet up and relax and take a nap because creation was just that hard. But in the ancient world, rest is what happens when crisis has been resolved and stability has been found. When things have settled down, right, that's when you rest. Now that everything is organized, the normal routine of life can begin. And so the cosmic Lego set has been constructed. He's taken all of the chaotic unorganized pieces. He's put them together into a functioning system. Ask any child that has just purchased a Lego set and just spilled those Legos on the table and has now put them all together. What are they going to do now that you put the pieces together? You spent four, hu- four hours putting this Lego set together. What are you going to do? Are you going to go take a nap? No, they'd say, I'm going to go play with it. I'm going to do with it what I intended to do with it. I'm organizing the pieces and building the set so it can be used. So for God to rest does not mean he disengages from responsibilities, but he rather engages his reign without obstacles. He is taking up his command. He is mounting his throne to rule his cosmos. And my friends, this might be the word that some of you need to hear this morning. Because you look at your own life and you see the chaos in it. You look at your own life and you see the obstacles in front of you. You, you look at your life and you're wondering, God... Are you in control of any of this? Can I trust you? Are you sitting on a throne anywhere? And so there's a story in the New Testament about how the Pharisees hated Jesus because he was doing all of these things on the Sabbath that you just weren't supposed to do on the Sabbath because the Sabbath was a day of rest. And what do you do on a day of rest? You go and you take a nap and you sit still and you don't do anything. That is literally how the the Jews understood the Sabbath day. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. You sit still. You do not work. You do not lift. You do not walk. Jesus comes along and and he sees this man with a shriveled hand. From birth, man, this this, this guy has never had a functioning hand. And so, what does Jesus do? He says, Hey, reach out your hand. But it's a Sabbath day, and the Pharisees condemn Jesus because he has just healed a man on the Sabbath. But isn't that exactly what the Sabbath is about? And Jesus says, You don't understand. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what I do on the Sabbath. I organize, I remove obstacles, I remove challenges. That is what the Sabbath is about. It's not about resting and taking a nap. It is about understanding that obstacles have been taken away and removed. It's about understanding that challenges are being minimized so that your life can function rightly. And that is what God does on the Sabbath. He takes up his command. He mounts his throne. He rules the cosmos. And so the conclusion to all this is this. Genesis 1 is not describing how a material world came into being. So my contention is that the questions you know, our scientific world are asking about the beginning of a material world are not the questions that the Bible is interested in, a- in answering. We're, we're, just, we're on two different pathways, right? The, the, the faith of Christianity and the questions of science are just on two different paths. The only absolute answer that the Bible gives about the beginning of a material world, is, which is what you know, scientists are interested in, is that God did it. The Bible doesn't tell us how God did it. All it says is that he did it. And so the point this morning is that science is not a problem for faith. You shouldn't be afraid of scientists. You know, let's not condemn the scientists. We should be able to work very closely with scientists and science. They're They're asking two different types of questions. But we learn from Genesis 1 is this. God created a good world, a world that should be celebrated, a world that should be pondered, and a world that should be protected and studied and understood. God put humanity within a world that is teeming with discovery. And so, science and discovery are blessings to humanity and our growth and our development. But when answering questions, science is capable of answering, which is not every question. And so, science does have limitations. As we began this conversation with, science absolutely has limitations. The problem science poses is that for many, Science has become a god. And the end-all and the say-all to why we exist, that is when science becomes a problem for us. That is when science becomes a problem for itself. But keep science exploring answers or questions that science can answer, and it's a good thing, and it poses absolutely no threat to the Christian faith. And so the challenge this week, hug a scientist. All right? Engage in a conversation with the scientists this week because they provide us so much in understanding this incredible, beautiful world that God has put before us. Jesus, we thank you for how you have inspired us, Father, to learn not only about who we are but about the world in which we live in. Father, thank you for this good world that is teeming with discovery. God, we're all using our senses all of the time. We're all observing how the world works. We're all standing in awe of how the world works, Father. And there's a, there's a scientist in all of us. And I pray, Father, that, that we, would, we would encourage science to continue to help progress humanity. But, Father, that we would rely on you to answer the bigger questions of the meaning of life, why we are moral people, why we are concerned for justice, that there are metaphysical realities, Father, that science cannot address. And I pray, Father, that we would then learn that this beautiful relationship can actually progress humanity into a beautiful people that has heart and mind, both in love for you. We do pray this in your name. Amen.